The Federal Innovator Podcast is brought to you by Accenture Federal Services and produced by GovExec's Studio 2G. Meeting 21st century challenges will require federal agencies to innovate more, deliver better citizen experiences, and operate more effectively. Accenture Federal Services combines deep client, industry, and technology expertise to help agencies reimagine how they achieve their mission. Learn how Accenture Federal Services can transform your bold ideas into breakthrough outcomes at Accenture.com backslash federal. Welcome to the Federal Innovator Podcast, a podcast for and about the innovators taking on the biggest challenges in the federal government and making change that is more human, simple, and enduring. Today, we're going to talk about art, innovation, and storytelling. I'm your host, Stephanie Wander, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at the Geotech Center at the Atlantic Council. And I'm Tim Irvin, Studio Lead for Accenture Federal Digital Studio. In this episode, we'll speak with Rachel Goslins, the Director of the Smithsonian's Art and Industries Building. We're going to dig into what innovation means to her and why she decided to pursue this futures exhibit and what it takes to move innovation forward in the world of government. Rachel, deeply grateful for you joining us today. You've had a really interesting background from lawyer to director producer to working in arts administration, including in the Obama administration on the Committee on Arts and Humanities. When you think about the design of your career path, even if they sound different, what are some of the ways where they felt like they were building one on top of another, if that was the case, how these things are stitched together? I don't think about it so much as a career, as a careen. (laughs) I have been lucky enough to go from fascinating and amazing job to the next one in a kind of non-linear way. It all makes sense in retrospect, but I'm not sure if I was doing that, what color is your parachute exercise in high school, I would have been able to predict a professional path that included being an international intellectual property attorney and then a documentary filmmaker and arts administrator and then a policy wonk in cultural policy and now leading museum efforts. But they're all kind of connected in some ways by several things. A deep sense of mission. It's important to me to feel like whatever I'm doing is kind of part of the solution and not part of the problem. And more practically, creative storytelling. You don't necessarily think about storytelling when you think of being a lawyer, but really that's what you're doing. You're taking a disparate set of facts that could be used to tell any number of stories and trying to turn it into a compelling and persuasive narrative. And that's exactly what you're doing as a documentary filmmaker. In many ways, that's what you're doing when you're making policy is telling stories and using data to compellingly and persuasively make a point and change things, hopefully for the better. And then as kind of the capstone to all this, being in the museum environment is kind of utilizes all of my skills at their maximum capacity in terms of having the opportunity to tell important educational and inspirational stories to millions of people using objects and technology and interactives. I love the notion of the Korean. I think that's a great way to think about it. I kind of jumped into multiple positions, but if you want to maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role. I'm the director of the Arts and Industries Building at the Smithsonian, which is a fascinating job. We are both the oldest unit in the Smithsonian and the newest. 
Arts and Industries Building was the first Smithsonian Museum built on the National Mall in 1881 and has been kind of a home for big ideas for 130 years. But it's been closed for the last almost 20 years now. I was brought in to both help the institution come up with a vision and a plan for renovating and reopening the building permanently and also in the interim lead the creation of this fantastic exhibition called Futures, which is the centerpiece of our 175th anniversary this year. Congratulations on that incredible exhibit. We will definitely dive into that. I would be curious to hear from you first a bit about how you see technology now intersecting with creative storytelling and this deep sense of mission. Do you find it's easier now to tell stories because technology is a role or do you find that technology actually complicates how you do storytelling? I think the easy answer is both. We have so many more tools at our fingertips to tell stories, to visualize stories for people with different abilities and different ways of getting information to access stories. But at the same time, that can create a lot of noise. And sometimes the tool is confused with the strategy, if that makes sense. Like we're so excited about all these shiny bells and whistles and what we can do with AR or VR or a multiverse that we lose track of what is most important, which is the story at the heart of that. So like most things, I think technology can be a tool for good or can make things better or can make things harder. Definitely. How are you seeing technology play out right now in terms of the work you're doing at the museum? I'm seeing a convergence of digital and physical in an interesting way as it grows over a generalization. But I think originally when kind of the virtual world came out, we started thinking about what can we do virtually and can we take all these things we do in the physical world, whether it's in museum interactives or ways of telling stories or talking about objects, and can we turn them into entirely virtual experiences? Can you use AR to put a Jackson Pollock in your living room? Or can you use a VR film to have a better experience than seeing a movie in a gallery? And what we're seeing now with technology, I think, is this sort of convergence where there are physical and digital aspects to so many of the things we're doing in museums. And the goal is that the virtual and technical, technological aspects enrich the physical aspects of being in our spaces. That's really interesting. I know part of the mission of the Arts and Industries Building is this exchange of ideas between past and future. And it seems like it's impossible to do that if you're not thinking about some virtual components, use of technology, but really kind of focusing on a story and that dialogue that feels really specific. And also the objects. I mean, mm-hmm. there's this huge push, like we should do everything on the internet and everything should be virtual and available remotely. And and that's hugely important to getting our message and our incredible trove of information and objects out to as many people as possible. But it's also true that our competitive advantage, our unique value proposition are the things that we have in our collection. We have the most amazing objects and artifacts on earth and standing in their presence is not the same as looking at them on your computer. 
I think the challenge for the museum industry is how do you use technology without giving up what is sort of the most compelling thing about the museum experience, which is being in the presence of the Apollo 11 or Dorothy's red slippers or the Hope Diamond. You can't substitute for seeing something in person. As you've been working on the features exhibit, are there objects that you hold more dear than others? There are so many amazing objects in our exhibition. We have over 150 objects, and they range the gamut from gigantic flying cars and robots to historical artifacts and current day objects like the first vial that the Moderna vaccine was created in, as well as artistic commissions that are exploring themes about the future. So it's impossible to pick a favorite. I tend to gravitate towards ones that demonstrate the ways that technology is capable of making us more human and not less so. We have a AI sculpture called Doing Nothing with AI in one of our galleries. And it's this cool, moving art piece, very bright, very cool. But what it's doing is tracking your movements and body position and feeding that through an algorithm to choreograph its movements in a way that's designed to put you into a state of creative daydreaming. We have an interactive that we created in partnership with Autodesk called the CoLab, and it's a generative design experience where groups of people work with AI to design their ideal community based on shared values. And that's a great example of how AI is capable of making people smarter and giving them options without abrogating the fundamental choices that we need to make as humans about what's important to us. I also like the flying cars and the robots and the art and the first Goddard rocket and the Bakelizer, this steampunk looking machine that was the machine first used to produce commercial plastic. All of these make you think about important things. What was the impetus for the Futures exhibit? Why is it important to be having a conversation about the future right now? Now more than ever, we need a way to talk about the future. I believe, my team believes, I think the Smithsonian believes, which leans into hopefulness and a flexibility of thinking that in some ways is in short supply these days. We have so much help right now imagining what could go wrong in the future. We're from media, from science fiction, from public intellectuals. There's a lot of conversations, and these are important conversations about what could go wrong and what we should be worried about and what we should work to avoid. But we don't have nearly as much help imagining what could go right. We're so good at imagining the future we fear, but not as good as imagining the future we want. And that's kind of the mission of this exhibition without being naive or Pollyanna about it. Let's take a minute and imagine the future we want so that we can figure out how to get there. That's such a powerful observation. Did you sit down and say, how do we ask this question about looking at our future from this hopeful lens? How did that drive your design process for the exhibit? We started out saying, we do not want to make the dark mirror exhibition. There's total value in that exhibition, and it has been done and been done in many interesting ways. We were about a year into it, and then the pandemic hit, and all of the social justice 
focus hit and the elections and the future kept getting scarier and scarier in some ways, but also more and more urgent. But even before that, even before the last couple of years, we started by saying, how can we build an exhibition that leans into the future we want and not the future we fear? And how do we do that without ignoring the fact that nobody knows what the future is going to hold? It's really interesting to be at the Smithsonian doing this because it is not a traditional place of comfort for the institution. We're really good at being experts on things. We can tell you everything you need to know about dinosaurs or the history of flight or African-American history and culture, but we can't tell you everything you need to know about the future because it hasn't happened yet. So we had to start this exhibition from a place of curiosity instead of authority. Our big light bulb was when we made the decision not to structure the exhibition around topics, but instead figure out how to structure the exhibition around values. What kind of future do we want? to live in? Do we want flying cars or jetpacks? Do we want a robot that serves us breakfast? But instead to start all of our curation with the question, what values are built into the future you want to live in? And so our exhibition is structured around kind of these three large halls, futures that unite, futures that inspire, and futures that work. And within each of those halls, there's different values that we cluster content and art and science and technology around, big ideas and little ideas. What does a future that works look like? Is it slow or is it fast? Where does sustainability and renewability and efficiency, where do those values all factor in? And then what does a future that inspires us look like? What's the role of creativity and storytelling and speculative invention? And then what's the future that unites us look like? How do values around collaboration, cooperation, empathy, how might those inform the future? What turns did you take after a year? Is it safe to say the exhibit is largely set in motion from its beginning, or did it take on a character that you couldn't have anticipated when you started, given all the changes that happened a year after the beginning? No, it was definitely a moment of pause as the events of 2020 started to unfold. It was actually validating because all of the subjects that became so acute in 2020 were already built in to our exhibition because we were talking about values. We also didn't want to recurate the exhibition for it to be about 2020 and all of the things that happened right. there. But we did. It did give us an opportunity to really take a look at our social justice and equity content and make sure we were doing a good enough job at thinking about what that might look like in the future. What was the role of partners and other companies, NGOs, nonprofits in the creation of this? Unlike most of the Smithsonian museums, we don't have a collection. This building has been closed for 20 years, and we don't have a specific discipline or subject matter expertise. We're not experts in natural history or American history. We don't have collections of spaceships and airplanes like they do at the Museum of Air and Space. And so partnership and collaboration was not only valuable, but was essential to us. We have objects from 12 different Smithsonian museums in our exhibition. And we had to go to them and say, what's interesting about this subject? What object could spark discussion on this subject? Teach us about the history of plastic or the history of spaceflight or how religion thinks about future. 
And then we were able to go out into the larger field and talk to incredibly interesting future thinking companies like Autodesk and Amazon and SoftBank and some of our other big partners, as well as universities and think tanks and artists with practices in speculative futuristic design and say to all of them, like, what is important to you when we say these values, what objects or ideas come to mind? You talk so much about being values-driven in your thinking, and I know that it also sounds like you're very conscious about how are you being inclusive as well. And I'm curious if at any point you felt a need to really interrogate the values that were driving the exhibition. Did you all ever talk about, are we really being truly inclusive in the values that we're selecting to govern the exhibit? Yeah, inclusivity is a huge both theme and lens for this exhibition before we even started putting together this exhibition, we commissioned an audience research for, firm to go out and do research nationally about how people felt about the future, what kind of future they wanted to live in, what values and ideas were the most important to them, what they were the most worried about, what they were the most hopeful about. So we did a national survey as well as a bunch of smaller focus groups which were very diverse and inclusive kind of intentionally to make sure that as we assemble these values, we were speaking and including the voices of everybody who has a role in the future. And we heard over and over again, I want a future that's fair. I want a future that's sustainable. I want a future that's peaceful. I want a future that's exciting. And so we incorporated those values at the very front end of our exhibition. And then at the back end, there's another process, which is taking everything we're doing and then filtering it through the lens of how will this sound across a range of audiences? Does this include the problems and the solutions that different communities need? How do we incorporate different communities? We're looking for ways to listen as much as speak in this exhibition. So often museum practice is a monologue and has a lot of broadcast, but not as much intake. And so whenever possible, we look for a way to incorporate inside voices or collect visitor voices and reflect that back to the people who come through the building. That's really interesting. It seems to speak directly to that mission of that exchange of ideas between the past and the future. Even just for you personally, how has your work on the future's exhibit affected the way you think about the future of cultural institutions? If anything, it has made me even more convinced of the value of arts and culture and storytelling to address some of the big, naughty, scary, societally threatening problems that face us as a planet. I came from the White House to this job, and I did have a moment where I thought, like, man, my, my last job, I was you know, getting up every day and bringing arts education to the highest poverty public schools in America and providing kind of this sense of direct service. And now I'm running a museum and like, where is my mission? Where is the thing that's going to get me out of bed every morning? And then as we got into thinking about the building and thinking about this exhibition, it became clear to me that first of all, the Smithsonian is a deeply trusted voice. And that is a currency that is in short supply in our current moment in time. There's a survey that came out a couple of years ago, which showed that trust in government voice is down, media, 
even think tanks and universities, but the one institution that people still trust are museums. And that civic trust is like an incredible asset. And how you deploy that or use that is a big responsibility and opportunity. And realizing that we, with this exhibition, had the opportunity to kind of help people think about the future in a new way, give them new language and structures to think about it, and in turn, that could empower them to do more, to feel more like agents of their own future, to take action, to be inspired. Like that felt like a mission that was deeply important. Rachel, I think it's fair to say that Tim and I are both incredibly inspired by this conversation. (laughs) I want to make sure that we give you that opportunity to share how people can come get involved and visit the exhibit. We're going to be opening this exhibition on November 20th and we'll be open through 4th of July next summer. And I would encourage everybody to come visit us and engage and bring their friends and their families and their coworkers, because our hope is that going through this exhibition is just a catalyst for people having their own conversations about what kind of future they want to live in and how to get there. Our website is aib.si.edu. You can find information about our programs and our opening activities and all kinds of fun things on that. In addition to our great exhibition, we're going to have a really robust set of panels and discussions and workshops. Come on down or visit us virtually. But however you do it, I encourage everybody to spend a little time talking to people they love about what their future looks like. What are other takeaways for other folks working in very different parts of the government, maybe more technology focused in some areas or more around skilling workforce and other areas? What advice you'd have based on your experience with the arts and industries building and futures exhibit specifically for them? My biggest piece of advice is to start with the why. We always start with the what or the how of the thing. What are we building? What's going to be in our exhibition and how are we going to do that? When you start from a place of curiosity about solving a problem, whether the problem is building a sustainable planet or whether the problem is flying over cities or whether the problem is organizing an exhibition around an impossible subject, starting with the why and being really curious about that and the values that are embedded in that always takes you to a more fertile place than starting with the how or the what. We always like to ask everyone who comes to our show, what are you geeking out about right now? I'm geeking out about alternative protein sources. One of the things we have in our exhibition is a deli case from the future that looks at all the different kinds of proteins, meats, fishes, chickens that might be available in the future through new methods of production. And frankly, if we can change our relationship with protein production, on this planet, we will be able to solve a big piece of our climate crisis. And so we're finding all these fascinating producers and scientists and technologists who are changing what we feed to cows, who are doing cell-grown shrimp and salmon, who are growing things in labs. And I'm just super excited about it. And I find myself wanting to go deeper and learn more. That was awesome. And you'll be surprised to know that's the first time anybody gave that answer on our (laughs) our episodes. Rachel, really, really grateful for your time. And I cannot wait to get into the exhibit. So thank you. We so appreciate having you on The Federal Innovator. Thanks, you guys. 
Stephanie, there were a remarkable number of things that were incredibly interesting in the conversation with Rachel. And I think even from the beginning of the episode where we talked about her career, which she corrected us to say was more of a Korean as she moved through a number of different things from policy walk to international law to arts and culture, policy and education, and then into an exhibit around the futures. I think that kind of principle of curiosity as a, a guiding object was one thing that seemed to be very much a constant throughout all of those different steps. How did you grok to that as we were kind of covering a multitude of different topics that Rachel is working on? Yeah, it resonated with me for a number of reasons. Like her, I've also had a Korean, so I think that helps make that connection. <laughs> I really appreciated what she had to say about starting from a place of curiosity and not from authority. I mean, that to me summarized sort of what I think curiosity needs to be throughout a design process. And frankly, I think we're better off as humans when we approach whether it's career or anything that we're doing from that place of curiosity. So I thought that was an especially powerful takeaway. This is something we've had multiple conversations around like the nature of risk in the federal environment when we're talking about kind of going into uncertain spaces and how that can feel almost like a personal defect as opposed to maybe a more modern way of working. But particularly to the Smithsonian, I thought it was interesting when she was talking about they typically are populated with remarkable experts that are designed to be experts and authorities on so many different topics when you talk about the collection of their objects and humanities and digital humanities and the role and the responsibility as a curator of our history and our future. Got a real sense from Rachel on kind of the mindset shift that was required when working on this exhibit to start with why and not really know where it's going to lead and being okay with that. It would have to be kind of a mind-bending experience for somebody who has built their career on exactly the opposite mindset. Yeah, wasn't that fascinating about risk? And, and in some ways, she talked about some of the culture being sort of intolerant to risk, that they're a place that has such a reputation and such a responsibility to do what they do well, that it actually makes it a potentially harder arena for risk. And at the same time, I think from that sort of artist perspective or from a storytelling perspective, or even from a kind of zeitgeist perspective, it seemed like she's also advocating that, that it's more important than ever now that we take those kinds of risks in art and in the presentations that we do. So yeah, and there was another component. Rachel talked a bit about kind of their responsibility with the arts and industries building to, in Smithsonian broadly, I believe, this exchange of ideas between the past and the future. That was really interesting. And so you've got this exchange of ideas between the past and the future, and you've got these objects that are like the vehicle to have that conversation. And then I think she put a finer point on the fact that it's not really about the curation of objects in this particular exhibit. It's about how that encourages these stories to take place. And it's about organizing stories in a way, not just the objects. Yeah, that was really powerful, both the idea that the objects and the, the way that they capture story and the way that we humans get to interact with objects can be so powerful and how that's been denied to us a little bit in recent COVID history. And, and so how it's this coming back. But yeah, it was fascinating, but then how it really gets this bigger picture of what story are we telling about our society? And, and, and then it, even that harkens back to what role do we want government to play in this future and in this society where we have these really big questions that we're struggling with. So yeah, it was really, really powerful to hear her take on that. One of the things that jumped out from the conversation as well for me was the theme that she talked about of, of trust to some extent, that she said that the Smithsonian was one of the most trusted institutions in government. Um, and that museums are among our most trusted institutions. And I found that to be rather surprising as well. I think trust in many ways has been 
a lingering element of a lot of our discussions and conversations with folks working in innovation in the federal space. And I think it becomes, it's, it's an outcomes driven discussion around like, how do you anticipate needs and allow people to participate? So I think it's fundamental, honestly, to human centered design and I think a human centered approach to strategy and innovation. And so I, I think it makes perfect sense that that came up and it is coming up consistently. And that notion of kind of trust and then coupled with, I think, some of the attributes that they're looking to incorporate and have been looking to incorporate into the exhibit. Rich was mentioning that there are so many different facets of our culture and media and just in the world that are helping people figure out exactly what is going wrong and diagnosing it with great zeal. And then saying, hey, we've got an entirely different responsibility. And that responsibility is building on trust is hopefulness. And so allowing people to participate there. But I wasn't expecting to hear that. And I thought it was fascinating. How did that hit you, Stephanie, that mix of trust and hopefulness as they think about their constituents? Yeah, Tim, I agree. It was just so powerful to have that message be the takeaway from a tough year and to see how that's the emergent theme that came out of the curation of this exhibit. I can't help but be inspired. This is something that I've thought about a couple of times since we concluded our discussion, but the idea of organizing around values, I think it was kind of an unbelievable turn because in my mind, I was thinking like, how do you organize content for an exhibit? about the future. And Rachel had mentioned that there's so many other places that are thinking about future of work, future of transportation, future of energy resources, or what have you. But the idea of asking the question of people, you know, what kind of world do you want to live in? And having exhibits and halls associated with those different spaces around value, and then having objects in those spaces that reinforce that. I thought that for me felt, I wasn't expecting as many commonalities for a futures exhibit as I was seeing and some of the other discussions we've had. But that for me, that kind of tied back into even the degree of co-creation. Like how do you allow people to participate in a way that is not just here, consume this thoughtful thing that we've created for you, but it's actually, they're invited more than allowed. They're invited to come in and share that perspective and share that orientation and in a way give them feedback. Totally. And wasn't it so impressive, the rigor that like she and her team brought to that process? I think that's what sort of blew my mind is the minute she's like, we started organizing around values. I was like, yes, that is where frankly a lot of our design processes need to go. And then when I pressed her and said, how are you doing this? How are you all working through it? She really laid out that they had given that a lot of thought, that they've really talked to a number of different people. And, and, and to me, that's where a lot of design processes fail is when you don't bring the rigor to the inclusivity in. You've asked a lot of great questions around designing for equity and building for inclusion. I'm curious your take on her thoughts about how do we hear these voices and how do we represent them in this exhibit and allow them to participate in a common future, even if, even if the past has been anything but common for most people. And I don't know that we necessarily have good answers yet for how to make sure we're really designing for inclusivity and, and thinking about the outcomes, whether it's of an exhibit or a product or a service that we're doing to really ensure that everyone is able to be engaged. It's so easy to cut off, I think, the tails and have marginalized folks in any design process. I don't know that it's an easy thing to do, but it's honestly very inspiring and hopeful when, for me when I hear that folks are really working hard and digging in to do it. Yeah, do you think for an organization like the Smithsonian, where they have this desire and I think this very genuine aspiration to be inclusive, to interrogate something as fundamental as what are the values that are driving an exhibit, 
I'm curious to know if you think that ends up being in conflict with risk aversion, like is risk the enemy of that process, right? Like if we're not willing to take a risk, if we're not willing to be wrong or to make a mistake in how we curate it, do we end up with the wrong result? Yeah, I think in my experience and with clients I've worked on, generally innovative ideas don't come from a place of fear. And I think as long as we can reinforce that creating an environment where vulnerability is not just okay, it's encouraged, I think you allow people to bring all of themselves, which is kind of like the whole idea of inclusive design. If there's one thing from this conversation with Rachel that you wish you could just export to all of your clients, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of your folks, I'm curious what that is. Like, what's the one thing you just wish everyone could absorb from this one? I think it's hopefulness. I think it's the responsibility that we have as you're working in innovation space, design, thinking about creating a vision of a potential future and then developing, doing the hard work to develop a plan to realize that, that desirable future. I think it's orienting to hope and hopefulness, I think is a big part of it. If you could bottle this up and sprinkle a little pixie dust on some of your colleagues or clients, what part of this would you bottle up and share? Honestly, the first for me is the power of values as design criteria. I really think that the more we say these are the values we are aspiring in any solution and using that as your real rubric for assessment, I think it's a movement that's evolving in the design thinking spaces. It's certainly something that when I was at USC, we talked a lot with our students about because they were very values-driven people and they cared a lot about what humans were experiencing. And so... I think values is a language where we say, what are we striving for? And it allows us to really negotiate tough problems well. So I think the more that you know, our, our friends in government can think about what are the values that they aspire to, or what are the values that are driving their decisions, I think that becomes a really powerful choice framework in anything that we do. And then I think the other part that just emerged for me for this was storytelling and just the power of human stories as a tool in any process. And that if we can get good at storytelling, we can get good at a lot of the other parts of any kind of creative process as well. I think a lot of times we confuse data with insights. And I think the storytelling ability is manifest in design thinking. And I think any valuable approach to motivate and coalesce around action, I think is fundamental. I love this. Those are great, great takeaways. Thank you for listening into this episode of The Federal Innovator. Please stay tuned for more episodes as we explore innovation across the federal landscape. Thank you for listening to The Federal Innovator, brought to you by Accenture. At Accenture, we're helping the federal government do the extraordinary things it takes to create a better future for everyone. See how we're delivering this new future faster. Visit AccentureFederal.com to learn more.